0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The global reflation trend that supported rising equity markets to start the year has been broadly felt in Asia-Pacific with the MSCI Asia-Pacific Ex-Japan Index, which is a key regional benchmark, showing its best returns in the first quarter of this year in 26 years. My guest today, Tim Mo, is the co head of macro research in Asia and the chief Asia Pacific regional equity strategist for Goldman Sachs Research. We'll talk about what he expects to drive market performance going forward in the region and key issues facing Chinese stocks. Tim, welcome to the program.
1: It's a great good. pleasure to be here. Tim,
0: you've identified three dynamics that are likely to influence equity performance in Asia Pacific in the coming months. At the top of that list is the reflation trend. What does the return to a more normal inflationary environment mean for investors in Asia Pacific?
1: Simply put, it means better returns. And the reason for that is that Asia ex Japan has been for the last five years, nearly six years, in a deflationary environment, which has put a lot of pressure on corporate profits. The updated numbers, which are quite fresh, are that the period from 2011 to 16, inclusively, earnings grew 2.6% on a annual basis in local currency and just 1% in US dollar terms. So effectively, for the past five, six years, there's been very little corporate profit growth. Therefore, it's not surprising the index has basically chopped around and gone nowhere. The good news is that having come out of this period of deflation, and this is most significantly shown in the turnaround in Chinese producer price inflation, so-called PPI. To put some numbers on this, at the beginning of 2016, that was minus 5.8%, very deflationary, and a function of the collapse in commodity prices and some other excess supply issues. The latest data point we have for February, it was plus 7.8. So in round numbers, going from minus 6 to plus 8 is a huge shift in the inflationary environment. And that is directly flowing through into corporate earnings growth. And to give you just one number, there's a National Bureau of Statistics assessment of the profits of the industrial sector, both listed and unlisted, a great number of companies in the in, hundreds of thousands. In China mainland in China mainland itself. And for January and February compared to one year ago, the profits were up thirty point five percent. Thirty point five. So that's a dramatic turnaround from the profit declines that we were seeing. And it's that shift in the corporate profit environment that is propelling equity markets now.
0: So, Tim, that's the good news. You've also written that we seem to be entering a phase of peak momentum when it comes to global and regional growth. How can you make that determination and what might it mean for equity investors in the short and medium
1: term? This is a really important point, and thank you for asking this. The evidence that we've got first at the global level and then at the regional level, at the global level. We have a monthly GDP proxy. Technically, it's called our Current Activity Indicator, CAI, and that has improved from, in rough numbers, the low 2% global growth level to over 4% currently. So the good news is that the global economy has clearly shown signs of improving in its growth momentum. The less good news is that the data surprises that have been coming out, which were – consistently positive in the second half of 2016 have flattened out and they're no longer surprising on the upside. So there's very good evidence at the global level that this recovery in momentum we've had is probably peaking right now. Now, if we map that onto the Asia-Pacific region, we can do the same thing. And if we look at our current activity indicator for Asia, that also looks like it's probably at its peak for the time being. Now, if we look at the phases of the business cycle, and conceptually you can think of four phases where if you think there's a trend to growth, phase one would be when you're above trend and improving, phase two would be above trend and accelerating, phase three of course is below trend and getting worse, and phase four is when you're recovering. We've been in phase one above trend and improving, and typically over the past decade and a half, your average three-month returns during that phase is 7.9% for the MSCI Asia Pacific X Japan index. In phase two, which is still above trend but moderating, your typical returns are more like 1.5%. And we think we're going into that now. So the punchline is that we think we're going from a period of really juicy, good returns, which, as you said in your introduction, is the first quarter in Asia was the best in 26 years and the second best in the entire history of the index. We think we're going to a period where returns will still be positive, but decidedly more muted in their magnitude.
0: So given that backdrop, you and your colleagues recently upgraded Chinese equities to overweight. How do these trends we've been talking about align with that view? Is there still more value to be gained?
1: Well, that's right. So against that backdrop, our view, our strategy has been to Try to identify the parts of the region that have the most idiosyncratic positive support because of these cross currents that are in the aggregate investment environment. And we think China exemplifies this or is the best example of this. Why? Three key reasons. Number one, as I just mentioned, you've got this nominal GDP improvement because of this change in the producer price index I was mentioning earlier. And that's giving China the best delta, the best change, as well as the best level of nominal GDP growth. And that's directly filtering through to earnings. So that's point number one. Point number two is that we have this concept of a policy put, i.e., there is a very important meeting politically in late October. It's the 19th Party Congress. And all the policymakers that we speak to indicate that in the run up to that, stability is going to be top of mind. It's going to be the priority. So we think we've got a very low likelihood of surprises on the policy front. Stability in the real economy
0: or in yes. the markets or well, both?
1: I mean, the markets are going to do what the markets are going to do, but I was referring to stability in the real economy. So we don't think there are going to be a lot of policy surprises, no sudden moves in the renminbi, no sudden tightening or other kinds of capricious policy measures that might set the markets off foot. And then the third thing, just quickly, is that from a positioning and investor flow perspective, we think we've got the best setup for China, partly because we've got this so-called southbound connect coming in. This is the money coming in from mainland China into the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which is unique to Hong Kong and is therefore a distinguishing positive factor. And secondly, when we look at a $1.2 universe of mutual funds and look at how they're positioned in China, they're at the lowest level of allocation to China in over a decade. And since China's 25% of the benchmark, if China does well, we think that that money will need to close its underweight, and so that will be another positive supporting force for the market. So,
0: you talk a bit about nominal GDP growth. Why does it make sense when it comes to equities to look at nominal growth as opposed to inflation-adjusted real GDP, and are there other economic indicators you're watching that show China's economic growth is about more than simply higher prices?
1: The reason for looking at nominal GDP is that historically, there's a much higher correlation between nominal GDP growth and various drivers of equity market performance. The most important one, of course, is corporate earnings, and there's just empirically a much higher link between the nominal growth environment and corporate revenues than there is between real growth and corporate revenues. And when you think about it for a few moments, that makes total sense because stock markets are not real. They're not inflation adjusted. So you're getting a price effect coming through the revenues and the earnings as well as the stock prices. So I know it may be a so-called money illusion, but it matters. And if the price goes up, the price goes up.
0: Particularly in an economy that transacts mostly in its own currency. Fair
1: point. Yeah. So point number one is there's a link between nominal GDP and corporate earnings. There also, briefly, is a link between nominal GDP and valuation, between nominal GDP and foreign portfolio flows, and then, of course, between nominal GDP and actual market performance itself. So the empirical evidence is very, very strong that you want to pay attention to the nominal growth environment. GS Research
0: has written extensively about the improving prospects for the Chinese consumer, and obviously, the government's been very focused on individual consumption is a long-term driver of the economy. Does reflation over the short and medium term do anything to affect that transition towards a more consumer-led economy?
1: You know, it might help it at the margin, but I wouldn't say it's a significant driver. Put it this way, it's much more consequential for the upstream manufacturing part of the economy, the materials-related or the metal bashing, quote unquote, part of the economy because- The old SOE. Correct. I mean, they were really under very substantial profit pressure and many were losing money under that deflationary environment that we were talking about just a few moments ago. And with that turning, there's been a huge upswing in profits for that sector. I mean, getting back to those National Bureau of Statistics, January and February profits, I was mentioning a couple of moments ago, they give you granular data on- about forty different sub industries and when we coalesce those into five larger groups which and rank them from upstream down to downstream, the upstream part of the economy is the one that most recently has been doing the best. So the delta has been most favorable there because of the switch in the nominal growth environment. For the consumer, that's kind of going along at more of a steady trajectory. It's a strong and inexorable trend in our view. And the particularly juicy part of that, so to speak, is the trend towards e-commerce, because not only do you have more consumption taking place, but there's more of that taking place online. So the the product of that gives you much stronger growth for e-commerce than bricks and mortar commerce. That's really the sweet spot in terms of the consumer story.
0: Not all companies will benefit from higher inflation. And you mentioned some industries that might benefit disproportionately. What sectors might underperform given the conditions you've outlined?
1: The area to be more concerned about would be in those more downstream or midstream industries now taking higher input costs because of the improvement in commodity prices. And if they're not able to have the pricing power to pass those cost increases along, then their margins get squeezed. And so one area that, from a regulatory standpoint, could be at risk would be the utility sector because they're taking higher energy input costs, for example, and they don't have the pricing power legally to kind of to raise their tariffs, then they're going to get squeezed. right?
0: So there's been obviously a lot of concern about the debt load of Chinese banks. And that's been a topic that's been under discussion, particularly amongst investors, but others as well for a long time. What gives you confidence about the outlook for that sector this year?
1: So we have significantly raised our view on the China banks, which is probably one of the more controversial opinions that we've been out with, because there's a strong sense, particularly among Western investors, that the Chinese banks are under tremendous credit stress, and there's a lot of risk associated with them. And the bigger picture is that China has accumulated a great deal of debt, debt debt-to-GDP levels, In rough numbers have gone from about 150% debt-to-GDP in uh, 2009 to about 260% today. So it's a more than 100 percentage point increase. And typically, historically, when you've had that quantum of increase in debt levels in a fairly short period of time, that has been associated with credit stress or slower growth or currency weakness and so forth. So there are clear reasons for being on the concerned and cautious side with regard to the China banks. Our point, however, is that For whatever level of concern you have regarding the banks, that the near-term delta, the change in the operating environment for the banks, is undeniably positive. The key issue revolves around non-performing loans, or NPLs, as the acronym goes. And the encouraging development is that NPL formation, the incremental new non-performing loans, has been tapering.
0: And what's driving that improvement in their non-performing loans?
1: It really is the improvement in the profits of the most stressed part of the manufacturing sector, which is the upstream part. And this is a direct consequence of the improvement in the nominal growth environment. And that's flowing through to their profits. So, for example, a year ago, the coal companies and steel companies were losing money, and now they're actually making very, very good profits. So the improvement in their cash flows means that they're much better able to service their debts, and that in turn means lower pressure on non-performing loans for the banks. And indeed, if you look at the recent results for the fourth quarter for the big banks, they all met or beat expectations, not just in profits, but also in NPL provisioning. So our argument is that the delta on the banks has clearly turned more favorable from an operating standpoint. The banks' valuations are priced at a significant low end of their, say, 10- or 15-year historical range. On a cross-sectional basis, they compare very favorably with other banking sectors across the emerging and developed markets. And therefore, the nearer term, say, over the next one or two quarters, risk-reward for the banks looks to be much more favorable than it did before.
0: Let's talk about some of the risks to your view on China, which means let's talk about the United States. The Fed has signaled that it's likely to raise its benchmark interest rates at least twice more this year. Higher U.S. interest rates typically attract investor dollars away from developing markets. Is China insulated enough to avoid any big drawback?
1: You can never say you're fully insulated from a drawback. You can always paint a scenario where outside conditions can be contagious. And China is a volatile market and investors can be skittish. So we wouldn't be so bold as to say that it would be fully inoculated from any external risks. I think in the current environment, we feel that in terms of the range that we've got for our expectations for the Fed, for the dollar, and for potential trade barriers, that we think those are manageable. To be more specific, the Fed seems to be signaling that it's interested in raising at a moderate rate, and it seems to be listening or responsive to developments in the economy. So there's almost this feedback loop that says that if the U.S. economy turns out to be not as strong as maybe people have been expecting, perhaps because some of the fiscal stimulus of the current administration may not be enacted either as swiftly or as significantly as maybe the market had been expecting in the fourth quarter, then correspondingly the Fed might dial back the pace of its interest rate hikes. And correspondingly, also the dollar would therefore not rally as much if the Fed isn't raising rates to the extent that the market had earlier thought. So within a an acceptable band of Fed increases and in dollar strength, our sense is that China specifically and other parts of Asia more broadly would be able to take that in its stride, as long as the underlying corporate profit growth dynamic is in place, which we think it is. So the
0: exchange rate gets a lot of attention, particularly here in the U.S. And as you said, tighter Fed policy should increase over time the value of the U.S. dollar, which might make Chinese goods relatively more competitive. Higher rates, stronger dollar, is that net neutral for China in your view over the long
1: term? It all depends upon the magnitude. When we're coming off a low point in U.S. interest rates, and you begin to tighten. And there's not too many examples of this in the last 20 years, but there are four or five periods when rates were cut and then the Fed began to raise. Historically, Asian markets tend to do well through the fourth Fed hike. And the narrative you can tell behind that is that when you're coming off a period of Fed cuts, which generally is because growth has been poor, that when you finally turn the corner and growth gets better, which then elicits a tightening of monetary policy, the initial first steps in that are absorbable by equity markets because they'll basically take the trade of better growth for a little bit firmer interest rates. And
0: stronger demand Correct, the big importer.
1: And the growth element is such a strong fundamental component of equity markets that a little bit higher rates, especially from the super low levels that we're at right now, are definitely absorbable. But after a certain period, and we can debate how much, but let's say historically about four hikes or five, then... Rates start going up enough that the market starts to say, well, hang on a second. The absolute level of interest rates is going up. We've already had our growth benefit. So the risk reward starts turning less favorable. And then it's much more of a problem. But I don't think we're quite at that stage now. Let's talk a little bit about trade. President Trump so far
0: stuck mostly to rhetoric with regards to trade, although the rhetoric's been strong. He recently announced some executive orders in the space. He hasn't forgotten about the issue, and how are you advising clients to manage the vast uncertainty around trade? Are there any signposts out there that you're looking at as a potential clarifying point?
1: Absolutely. I think a useful mental construct for thinking about this trade issue is to imagine a line segment with the left side being the most negative outcome and the right side being the positive one. And on that segment, you can position the roughly three or four broad categories of likely trade developments that may take place in the next weeks and months. At the leftmost part of that line, the most negative one would be the border adjustment tax. The reason why that is the case is that it would be profoundly disturbing or changing to the profits of a number of industries, and you would likely see a very significant increase in the dollar which could have a lot of second and third order ripple effects around emerging markets. So that would be very disruptive. Also negative, but not quite as negative, would be the 45% across the board systemic tariff increase that was discussed during the Trump campaign. We don't think either of these are likely, but they would be quite negative if they took place. Effectively, for those two, you've got a low probability chance of a very high impact event. And then much more towards the right end of the spectrum would be sector-specific tariffs or other forms of restraint, which would obviously hit the companies involved but would not be systemic in nature. And we think the market could absorb that in its stride. And they would give the president the political – announcement capability to claim a victory without having significant systemic disturbance. The other upside, by the way, which would be at the most positive end of the spectrum, would be if a deal was done to increase U.S. exports to China as a way of narrowing the trade gap. So instead of hurting China by constraining its imports into the United States, you could solve the bilateral trade imbalance by encouraging China to buy more U.S. stuff. And if that was the case, it would be a great win because it would be good for employment in the U.S. It would solve the deficit in a – well, not the deficit, but the – the, the it. Yeah, it yeah. would improve it there There's been, there, there's been some
0: precedent for that in the past, yeah. opening up to U.S. agriculture, exactly. fruits, et cetera. Yeah.
1: And even there's been some talk among clients I've been speaking with about potentially some energy deal being done. Could China divert some of its energy purchases from the Middle East or elsewhere towards the United States – and that would be a big boost for some central parts of the United States, which would also play to the political base. My larger point here is, you can imagine a spectrum of outcomes. We can't handicap what those are going to be, although we do have a strong view that the probability of the extreme negative ones is low because although China would be hurt more, the U.S. would also be hurt by those. And that would obviously be antithetical to the larger ambition of having the U.S. grow and having more job creation. So to your point about what do you do about that, we think that the situation of a low probability of a high negative impact event is something that if you have the capability of doing this, is best dealt with in option space, because options are basically a downside insurance program, insurance protection against, as I just said, a low probability of a high impact event.
0: You talked a little bit about the meeting this fall. China will host its 19th National Congress of the Communist Party, and this is only a twice a decade event that government leadership changes are usually announced. You've outlined a quote-unquote policy put that you talked about earlier surrounding this year's event, and you've pointed out that in the past, equity markets have performed reasonably well in the run-up to the Congress. How does the potential for a trade dispute with the United States affect that usually reasonably reliable framework?
1: It's obviously a new kink in the system, so to speak, and I think the answer to that would maybe break down into two parts. A, how significant would that trade spat be? If it was something that was, to get back to my little mental model, on the right side of that spectrum, maybe sector-specific and not systemic in its nature, then I think that that wouldn't really disturb things too much. On the other hand, if it was more of a full-blown trade war, and we strongly feel that if the U.S. was to go and impose, for example, a 45% across-the-board tariff on all Chinese goods – That China would certainly respond in kind. And that means that everyone would get bloodied and it would generally be bad all the way around. And most likely, that would be something that would dominate the scenario that I mentioned earlier of a stable policy run up. So it is a wild card. And that's why we think that having some sort of downside protection, if one is able to, is a sensible approach at this point.
0: So, Tim, you know views on China can oscillate between extremes, even within our own firm. When you talk to uh, clients, what are the issues where you see the broadest difference of opinion? And how does that dynamic impact your approach as an analyst chatting with these firms?
1: I think it really revolves around the longer-term structural view on China. So, the key hot-button topic is credit and the significant amount of credit which accumulated. And the bears have a strong case to make that there has been this unprecedented debt boom. At least some part of it was inappropriately invested. There's been evidence of so-called malinvestment, moral hazard in terms of people diverting capital into various products, say wealth management or trust products that were probably over-guaranteed or missold. And so there's no doubt there's some mess that needs to be cleaned up. And I think where the debate hinges is whether China can manage that cleanup process, so to speak, and whether it's got the time to kind of earn its way out of the problem. I mean, the good comparison between China and Japan, for example, is that Japan got into a significant debt problem, as we all know, in the late 1980s. And for the last two decades, has stultified and had to recap the banks several times but the key difference is that Japan wasn't growing. And so if you're not growing and you have a deflationary environment, your debt burden just sits there and it gets bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier. In China's case, fortunately, you do have a generally inflationary environment. You still have underlying trend growth of 6 and a half percent You can argue about the exact number, but it's still meaningful. And so if time is on your side when you are able to continue to grow your way out of that problem. And I think that's really where the debate is between – the more pessimistic side of the market, and the more constructive side. I don't think anyone is sort of fully Pollyanna, like China's no problems. And it's actually a very small portion of the market, which is dogmatically of the view that China is going to, quote unquote, blow up in the very, very near term. But there is this spectrum in between of the more bearish and the more maybe sanguine. And I think it really turns on the view of the ability of policymakers to kind of manage their way out of this tricky situation that they've got themselves into.
0: And so far policymakers have met or beaten expectations Absolutely. looking at
2: the
1: last 15 years uh, or so. For sure. And I've had many conversations, particularly in the last 4 to 5 years, and oftentimes particularly when we've had stress points like the B mini devaluation which we had twice, once in late 2015 in August and again 2016 in uh, January, where this really fanned the bear sentiment and people were of the view that China was going to devalue, say, 20% imminently and the economy is really going to have a so-called hard landing and so on. And so far, the policymakers have managed to diffuse that immediate threat and the economy has actually printed somewhat better than consensus expected growth numbers and the currency has been stable and it looks as though the banks are continuing to earn sufficient pre-provision operating profits to continue to accumulate reserves against potential NPLs. So, so far, they've done a good job of managing their way with a number of conflicting objectives. And the jury's still out as to whether that will continue, if there's going to be any mistakes made, et cetera. But so far, particularly in the last three to five years, I think the policymakers have done a better job than the more immediately bearish contingent in the market has expected.
0: Tim, thanks for joining us again. Fascinating.
1: Thank you very, very much. Appreciate it.
0: That concludes this episode of Exchanges of Goldman Sachs. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time.
2: This podcast was recorded on April 3rd, 2017. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording.